Hi everybody, this is Arthi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with a past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connection, connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I tru truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. An acknowledgement to country. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land which now comprises Greater Shepparton. We pay respect to their tribal elders past and present and emerging. We celebrate the continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. And today we are talking to Stephen about his chapter, from finance to social impact of the beaten path. Go for it, Stephen. Tell us a bit about yourself. Party, thanks so much, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, let me start a little bit about myself, and then I might just stop for a moment and see if you have any questions, and I'll, I'll move into what happened next. So yes, my name is Stephen Fleischer. Uh, I grew up in New York City in the United States, actually right in Manhattan. And I'm now speaking to you from Nairobi, Kenya, where I've been living for five years, where I went fast. Um, and I've been coming to for a number of years, six, seven, eight. Um, and the story I want to tell you, the chapter I want to talk about, is really how we connect those two dots, how I ended up from New York City in Manhattan, and I ended up moving over here to Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, in New York, I was a only child, um, two wonderfully loving and very involved parents, went to a very, very small school in Manhattan that was all boys. Um, I moved on after that to university in uh, Maryland, in Baltimore, a school called Loyola University, Maryland, where I studied finance. And as I think most people are at 18 years old when they join university, they have absolutely no clue what they want to do with the rest of their lives. And I was the same way. I had no idea either. But despite not knowing, there was clearly a plan. It wasn't an overt plan. It wasn't a plan that was pushed on me. But I think there was an assumption. And it was an assumption that I felt. And I know a lot of my friends felt um, in New York, at least at the school that I went to. And the assumption was, you'd come back to New York City. You'd live in the vicinity of your parents. You'd work in a finance banking kind of role. Uh, you'd work at one of these big companies that people have heard of. And that was the trajectory you were going to. And again, it wasn't something forced or, or pushed or demanded. It was just the, the subtext that um, I certainly felt. So it certainly behooved everyone when at the end of my four years of university, I ended up uh, not going in that direction, despite having graduated with a finance degree and doing fairly well. Um, and I ended up going to Nairobi, Kenya. So that was sort of getting off the path. And I would really um, credit getting off the path and heading over to Kenya to the Jesuit ideals at the school I went to. So the Jesuits are this subgroup of Catholicism and they are about many things. But one of the things they're about is what they call the magis, which is expanding your horizons, learning from different places, growing, seeing the world, trying to make an impact where you can, 
trying to empower and support where you can, but also having some self-growth in this process. And because of that, it was increasingly popular for people to take a year, year break um, before getting into the workforce and doing some kind of one-year volunteer kind of, uh, kind of thing. So what I chose to do was to come to Kenya. And I want to emphasize, um, unlike the normal approach, which is you join a, a sort of formal organization and you head over to one of these places with a bunch of other friends that you're comfortable with or a bunch of other um, country mates and you live in a house together and you have sort of a structured program. My program was not structured at all and I wouldn't even call it a program. I flew to Kenya and lived with um, monks from an order called the Marianist order, which is also one of these subgroups of Catholicism. And um, the Marianist order uh, of East Africa uh, contained people from Malawi, from Zambia, and from Kenya. So I lived in their community home uh, just outside uh, a slum area called Makuru Kwanjenga. And there was no program. They had no idea what to do with me. They threw me right into their school and, um, and asked me to help wherever I could. It was a school that, that had probably about 75% of the teachers that they needed to operate. So at any given time, 25% of the classes did not have a teacher um, teaching the kids. The kids would, would be in a class vacant. Um, so maybe I should stop there for a moment. I was going to give a little background, and now I'm all the way over in Kenya already. So <laughs> are there any questions, anything I should mention before I continue with this kind of transition here? Yeah, so I just had a couple of questions sort of backtracking. Um, give us a yeah. bit about the timeline of when you finished university, when you studied, um, yeah, when you finished your studies and went into the workforce, what was that like? And what in particular instigated that decision to travel to Kenya? Sure. So um, in university, so that was the four-year normal university, 18 years old to, you know, 21-ish, 22-ish years old. Um, I was interning at Merrill Lynch, which again was sort of right on that path that was kind of pushed or laid out on me. Um, and then as soon as I graduated, maybe give it two months is when I traveled to Kenya. So I never uh, worked right after university. I, I sort of went right to Kenya afterwards. I was planning it out in my senior year of school. It was something I really wanted to do. Um, so I hope that answers your question. I think the next bit of your question was, what was the motivation to, to do something like that? Um, you know, I'll be really honest with you. The motivation was I, um, I had lived a sort of fortunate life. I had grown up in New York City. I had, you know, we took nice vacations as a family. I went to a pretty good school. Um, and I didn't want to just stay in this bubble. I wanted to get out of this bubble and try to do something special. Um, I still enjoy finance. I think it's a great career. All my friends are in it. But for me, I didn't want to stare at a computer screen with a lot of numbers on it my whole day. I wanted to see if I could find a way to do something that would really be special. Um, and 
you know, this is a common saying, it's sort of not my saying, but I think if you're, if you're doing a career or doing a vocation where you jump out of bed in the morning because you're so excited to do it, you're doing the right thing. And I wouldn't have been able to do that in a finance career, but I certainly do it now. And we'll get to this later on on the call, but I certainly can do it now because right now I'm in Kenya. I wake up in the morning and from nine to five or maybe a few hours longer, I just try to see if I can find a way to make a little bit of a difference and to empower some really, really great kids who deserve it. And that, and that makes me really happy. So I did not know that that was going to be my end place, but at 21 in university, I did know that finance wasn't the answer and that I wanted to see a little bit more of the world. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, and sorry, one more question. You said expanding the horizons value. What, what about it at school made you resonate with that particular value deeply? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer, but let me see if I can try to stumble on it. Um, I, I think Loyola in, in Baltimore did a really good job um, creating an environment where these values were mentioned, but they weren't pushed on you. And that, that's how you should do it. For, because for kids, when you, when you push something on them, the only thing they want to do is they want to run away from it. So it was mentioned, it was there. Um, we had priests and, and lay Jesuits um, sort of around campus, sitting down, having lunch with you and talking to you about these ideals. And it was there if you wanted it, or you were very welcome to ignore it if you wanted to ignore it. Um, but I always liked talking to these guys, and I always liked listening to their perspective. And I was always fascinated by people who were willing to um, make such sacrifices and join a religious order um, because they believed in it. And I, um, I, I enjoyed hearing the concept. And as someone who, um, like I said, as someone who was sort of in a bubble, I was in this New York City, you know, vacation in Florida kind of bubble. I, um, I think I resonated with it and I, I really wanted to escape and, and see something else and grow from it. Um, but most importantly, to try to try to do something special, not just play around with an Excel sheet, but do something that maybe had an impact. Um, so I hope I touched on the answer to that one too. Yes, yes, you did. Beautiful. And then back to, okay, so you started living with the monks in Kenya and you were asked to teach at the school? Yes. Yeah, sure. So let me just continue where I left off. That sounds great. Um, so... Fast forward to the end of university, I moved to Kenya. Um, I lived with a wonderful group of people. Um, like I said, Kenya, Zambia, and Malawi. And they asked me to teach in this area called Makuru Kwanjenga. And Makuru Kwanjenga um, literally means like the trench or the dump um, of Jenga in Swahili. Um, and there was a guy named Jenga who had settled there. And it eventually became, unfortunately, an area that they call in Kenya a slum. Um, and Islam is a tricky word. I don't think it's, it's not used very much in um, the US, but basically it's, um, it's, a, it's an area that doesn't have a lot of public utilities, right? There are not roads. There is not really electricity, though sometimes people try to connect when they can. 
There are no, there's no plumbing, there's no running water. If there's a fire, a fire truck cannot enter the slum. Um, if there's a need for a doctor, you can't get an ambulance in there. Um, it is all sort of tin corrugated iron shacks in a very densely populated area. And people stay there because it's just the only place that they can afford. Um, and in Kenya, as, um, as you obviously know, Artie, um, there are not a lot of jobs in the rural areas of Kenya. Yeah. So you need work, you have to come to Nairobi, uh, which is the capital. And the problem is you come to Nairobi and you can't afford to live anywhere. And that's why these slums are, are, are all over the place, frankly. Um, so the first day or second day I arrived in Kenya, they took me to the school to sort of show me what I was going to be doing and where I was going to be working and um, to show me the environment. And the school is actually, it was a really well done place. They had a lot of challenges, um, but it was, it was really a, a wonderful place for a lot of reasons. They gave the kids a, a 10 a.m. cup of porridge, which was something kind of unique in schools in these kinds of areas that's basically unheard of. They had a proper lunch. Um, they had uh, donated water, um, a, a burr hole was sunk so that they had free water that was healthy and it was treated for the kids. So for the kids coming to the school, unlike me when I went to school, they loved coming to school. They had water, they had food, they had porridge. Um, it was really a wonderful place and you could feel that in the walls. Uh, the other thing that really struck me after, after going there and teaching for a little bit is that the kids really wanted to learn. The kids wanted to stay in class. I wasn't like that. I wanted to cut class so I could play a video game. They wanted to stay in class. They wanted to learn. And, and the funny bit was when I, um, when I had breaks in between my class schedule, like I said, there were a whole, about a quarter of the school didn't have teachers. So they were, they were just sitting there. The kids were sitting in the class empty. And the kids would run around the school, not playing, but looking for a teacher to ask them to sacrifice their free period so they could teach. The kids didn't want to be in the room by themselves. They didn't want to play. They wanted, they wanted to learn something. Yeah. Um, and after a few conversations with them, what, what they told me was the only way they can make it to high school, to secondary school, is if they did really well in their exams. And they couldn't do well unless they had a teacher to teach them. So they wanted to make it to secondary school. That was their goal. And I just couldn't believe that. This school was a primary school. These kids were 13 years old and younger. And I had 10-year-old kids coming up to me saying, please, please teach me. I just want to do well on that exam so I can go to secondary school. That's my dream. Yeah. So that was obviously very, very touching for me. And I, I was really moved by it. Um, and I think that was the genesis of me trying to see if I could find a way to empower these kids. How can I ensure that all these guys go to high school? How can I make sure that they can you know, reach their dreams and, and do whatever profession they can do? And um, I tried in a number of ways to, to make a little impact. And I'm gonna tell you a couple really quick stories, but all of the times I tried were basically failures except for one. And the, the last one is the one that led me to start living in Nairobi. Um, so the, the first time I tried to make an iota of an impact was when I, um, when I entered Makuru Panjenga for the first time, I noticed there were some kids on the side of the, the walkway playing soccer. 
Yeah. And it's not easy to play soccer in these kinds of environments. I mean, it's, it's very, very muddy terrain and it's a difficult place to play soccer, but they were having fun and they were trying and they were really enjoying themselves. But I noticed that the ball they were playing with wasn't a real soccer ball. They had just taken rubbish and garbage and they've kind of put it together and compacted it and they took some rope and they, yeah. they wrapped it around. Yeah. And I had two feelings. My, my first feeling was, what a bunch of smart kids. Yeah. They couldn't find yeah. a soccer ball, but what, what ingenuity to, to, to make this thing work? Because it, it works, okay. Um, and my second feeling was, let's, let's try to make a difference and let's get these kids some soccer balls. It's not a real difference. It's an iota of a difference, but maybe it will make their experience a little bit better. So I went out, I bought half a dozen soccer balls. I came back and every time I saw a group of kids playing, I would give them a soccer ball. And this story, the moral of the story before I finish it, is this an example of why you, you can't just fly in from America and expect to make a difference without understanding the culture and understanding how things work. Um, you can't just throw money at the problem. You have to understand the issues, understand the problem. And I did not at all, because it was about two days where I saw kids playing with proper soccer balls. On the third day, the parents of all of those kids took the soccer balls from them. They went out into, into the traffic, so in, in the roads of Nairobi, which are, are often bumper-to-bumper traffic, yeah. and they sold the soccer balls in the roads. And obviously, whatever they, they made was, was a profit. Um, and then the kids went right back to using those rubbish, roped-up garbage uh, uh, soccer balls. So it was a, it was a good lesson that you need to understand how the, how the community works before you can try to empower anyone, before you can try to make something change. And it was a, maybe a little bit of a humbling experience. So that was maybe story number one of me trying to, to improve the situation. The, um, the second time I tried, which was also a, a, not a good story, um, but I think something you'll find interesting is I was, I was in Kenya for about a year. I felt like I knew how the community worked at this point. And I said, what is the best way I can improve this primary school? How can I make this primary school better for the kids? And I decided to tackle one problem. And the one problem as I saw it was the dining hall. So how lunch worked in the dining hall was that there was a big, no tables, no chairs, no benches. There was one gigantic bowl of food right in the center of the dining hall. And what the students would do when it was lunchtime is they'd walk into the dining hall, they'd scoop up as much of the food as they could with one hand, they'd move it to the other hand, and then they would just eat with their their other hand. So they would just walk around the school, food in one hand, and then sort of just eating it with their other hand. Yeah. Um, For some students who had a little bit a little bit more money um, from the community, they would have a bowl with them. So they'd scoop it up with the bowl and then they'd eat with their hand out of the bowl. So I said, you know what, we can, we can make this better for sure. And now I know what I'm doing. Now I've been here for a year. So maybe I cannot make the same mistake I made with my soccer balls. So what I did was I found some, some local guys from the community to build tables for the entire dining hall. So we had tables made, we had benches made, and then we bought a number of serving bowls for each table. 
And we designed a whole new system for the school. We were going to have table captains at every single table. Kids would not be walking around anymore. They'd be sitting down. Bowls would be provided at every table for each student. And there was going to be kind of a communal bowl. Mm. And the table captain, when all the kids sat down, would serve each student. And then we'd all, everyone would eat. And it would be a, a nicer environment. Well, again, the arrogance of some foreign guy who doesn't understand the community trying to make a difference. I, um, it worked for a couple months. And then on the school holiday, all the tables disappeared. And it is still unclear where the tables went, but it seemed that, you know, having all these nice tables in a, in a, in this kind of community that have a good value, I mean, have a really good resale value, they were, they were grabbed by somebody and they were resold. And again, I, I didn't have an impact. So I'm 0 for 2 on this journey of trying to, trying to have a little bit of an impact and I finally, on my third one, I got it right. And that's how I decided to end up living here. And uh, the third story, and this is, a, um, this is, this is really the genesis of, of my career, is um, one of the students that I was teaching. I was teaching a math course. I was always very, very good at math, and I, I felt very comfortable teaching, uh, teaching some of the tough math courses. But one of the students that I was teaching in class eight, so right before high school, uh, came up to me and said, I just want to thank you for all your teaching and, you know, goodbye forever. I said, what do you mean goodbye forever? You know, I'm sure we'll see each other around. And she said, no, unfortunately, my parents can't afford high school. Um, and they're worried about being able to afford high school for my younger siblings. Mm -hmm. So what they've decided is that um, I am going to be going to Somalia. And there's a man there who I'll be marrying. And he's sending over some money and some cattle and a variety of other things. And my parents are hoping that um, through the gain of this transaction, if you will, um, they'll be able to afford school for their younger siblings. So um, obviously that was astounding to me coming from a, you know, New York you know, city and you know, university in, in, in Maryland. So I sat down with the mom and the dad and I, I said, you know, how can we help? Because school is $1,000 at most and uh, we could maybe figure something out. And the mom was very grateful and was very happy to hear that maybe her daughter would go to high school. The dad was not. The dad was very, very upset. He, uh, he had made a deal. There was an arrangement. There was negotiation. Um, uh, a deal was struck. And there was no interfering with his, his deal. And it, it was not appropriate for me to get involved. So after a number of meetings, we decided to, uh, we convinced the dad and we sent this one girl to high school. And she wanted it so bad. She was so interested in going to high school and going down a different path, right? She didn't want to go down the Somalia marriage path. She wanted to get an education. And in my opinion, because she wanted it so much, that's why she did so well. So um, first term, she was number two or three in her class. I can't remember exactly, but she was in top three students. I do remember that. Um, she was getting straight A's and she continued doing so for her whole career. And that was kind of the genesis of me deciding to start a nonprofit because that was the first time, you know, that was the first time it worked. 
I had failed two other times. I had thought of other ideas that I knew wouldn't work. And this was the first time I, I saw that I was actually empowering someone to do well. And that was very special to me. It was really, it was really great for me. So let me stop one more time, Artie. I've been talking for a while. Any questions, maybe anything I should clarify that you think should be clarified for this kind of talk? So I wanted to know when you first moved to Kenya and started living with the monks and on the second day you said you were sent to the school, what was your initial transition like? Again, obviously there's a stark comparison between your life in New York and your life in Kenya, but what are some of the things that you deeply resonated with and some things you didn't, yeah just some profound moments even. Sure. Um, the transition was, was, was radical. It was a very, very um, incredible transition. What's interesting was um, despite it being a radical transition on paper, it was not a radical transition in my heart, um, if, that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I will continue, I expect, for almost the rest of my life to tell people, and it's the truth, that that one year living with those monks was the happiest year of my life. We couldn't afford food. We had beef one day a week, and we had fish on Fridays, as is sort of the old Catholic tradition. Every other day, there was no, no, no beef, no, you know, no fish, nothing like that. We ate rice and beans, we ate, um, a lot of dinners would, would just be Ugali and Sufumawiki, you know, two Kenyan staples. Um, and despite that, I was the happiest guy in the world. We would pack into these little buses called Matatus. We'd head over to Makuru Kwanjenga. Um, Makuru Kwanjenga was a challenge to walk through. Um, I fell a number of times on my face, mud everywhere. I'd have to go home and get chained so I could be presentable for the kids. Um, we lived right on this, frankly, a highway, Mombasa Road. And to cross Mombasa Road on the way home, there was no crossing. So you'd have to sprint to the median, stop there, and then try to gain the courage to sprint across again. Um, and like I said, it was, it was the joy of my life to this day, um, living with those guys and working hard to, to just try to give a good education to kids who otherwise would not be able to get a good education. So to answer your question in one sentence, it was a stark transition, but I, I never thought about going home once. I, I really was very, very, very happy. And I, I don't know why, but I, I, I really just enjoyed, um, you know, trying to live in and take in the culture and try to make a little bit of a difference and try to meet some great kids. It was wonderful for me. Absolutely. And my other question was, you talked about, so in terms of story one and story two, you mentioned that you didn't understand the problems, the culture per se. How did you engage with the communities to try to understand their culture, their um, way of being and living, but then also having it being reciprocated towards you? Right. Um, well, before I get into it, let me just say, um, when I say fail for those two stories, what I, what I really mean, and I, I do mean fail, but what I really mean is 
it was not a sustainable and lasting difference, right? You know, it's wonderful that those kids got to play with a fancy soccer ball for two days. Um, but, you know, two days is not the kind of impact you're trying to make. You're trying to make a, a long-term impact. And, and what they always say is you want to teach someone how to fish. You don't want to give someone a fish. You want to teach them skills that will um, make them independent and, and that'll last for years and years. And I obviously didn't know how to do that because I didn't understand the community. I was clueless. I came down from somewhere else and I thought I knew everything and I did not. Um, so the answer to your question now is how did I sort of learn the culture and how did I understand the community? Yeah. And um, I, I don't have, a, I don't think I have a long answer to that. My answer was I talked to everyone. I visited kids' homes. I met kids' parents. I sat down with the teachers who um, lived in the vicinity. And I asked 10,000 questions. That was my conversation style for a year. I just, I just asked 100 questions. Um, and, and to some extent, they asked questions back. And I did enjoy explaining my culture and what things were like in the US to them. But it, it was more the other way around. Yeah. I knew I was clueless. I knew I didn't understand. I knew I wanted to do something good, but I, I, I knew I didn't know how. So I, I just asked a million questions. I, I visited in that year, probably a hundred different people's homes. Um, and I, you know, usually you bring a little gift, I'd bring a little food staple or something and we just sit down and talk. And um, I'm very grateful to the, you know, to the brothers and priests and the, the monks that I lived with because they would always go with me. Um, we were we were very aligned in that way. Um, that was their calling as well to to sit with people and to hear about um, what's happening in their lives. There's a, you know, I, I'm not actually very religious despite the way I sound, but in Catholicism there's something called ministry of presence. Yeah. And basically, what that means is you don't always have to fix everything. You don't always have to necessarily do something specific. Sometimes just listening and being present is, is enough. And that's what we did. We went to homes and we, we listened to struggles. We listened to, to happy moments. And I learned a lot through that, I think. Yeah, beautiful. And then for story three, um, what happened to that girl? Did she continue? She, she continued through high school. She um, did extremely well. And she wanted, she, you know, everyone has their own dream, right? Yeah. And I didn't have a dream when I was 18, but she actually had a dream. She had a specific thing she wanted. She wanted to be, I don't really know the proper term. She wanted to be a, a makeup artist. She wanted to do makeup and do hair and do all these little things, do these kinds of things. Yeah. So, um, we sent her after high school to a college kind of course. Yeah. Um, college in, in Kenya being sort of a, a more specific trade kind of uh, kind of educational uh, institute. And then after two years, she finished. She worked for someone else at a salon, if you will. And then she actually, you know, in Kenya, there's so many entrepreneurs. It's it's a it's the backbone. It's the spirit of Kenya. Um, she at 22 started her own uh own salon so she has a little tiny little shop and she wow. runs it herself 
she is doing just fine. So we are, um, you know, we're always there to support her if, if they, she needs us, but she is independent. She's self-reliable. She makes her own money. She can afford to live very nicely. And uh, that, that's, that's the goal, right? That, that's giving a soccer ball for two days is not the goal. This is the goal. So that's what happened to her. That's amazing. Okay, continue. Tell us what happened next. Sure. So um, when I sponsored that one girl that I've mentioned, um, that was about the very end of my year in Kenya. So now I'm coming back to America. And now what the heck do I do? You know, I was planning on doing finance, but after spending a year in that way, there's no way I can, you know, do that. So what I had decided was, you know what, let me maybe um, try to do the same kind of stuff, but I'll do it through the law and I'll do it in the United States. So I went to law school in Chicago and the idea was I'd be a practicing attorney. I didn't know what exactly, but I would try to fight some of these battles through the law. Maybe I'd do human rights, maybe I'd do some international law, you know, we'd hopefully figure it out through law school. So um, I, I pursued the, the law career. I ended up graduating through law school. I, I worked for a brief period of time. I worked through law school. I did a variety of mediations for um, a small clinic where people who had disputes couldn't afford to have a lawyer to do a, a mediation for them. So I did that for, a, for quite a while. Um, but all the while, I was still supporting a few students in Kenya. Okay. So I was still supporting this one girl that I mentioned. Yeah. And then I was, I was trying to find more boys and girls from, similar, from the same area and with a similar spirit to support them as well. Because like I said, this, now this was working. Now I had found a way forwards. So I obviously couldn't afford to, to sponsor more than just one person. So what I did is I went to all my family members and I said, dad, can you give me a thousand dollars so I can help this one girl go to school? Sure. Went to my uncle, went to my mom, went to everyone I could think of, my grandma, my cousins, everybody. Yeah. And we uh, got six family members together and we started sponsoring five more students, six students total. Yeah. And it was a very simple model. It was not complicated. I was in law school at the time. Um, the monks helped me select the best students from that school. We sponsored the best kids who we really thought had the ambition to succeed. And um, I paid the school fees. And it was simple as that. And after a year, my family members all called me up and said, Stephen, no more of us giving you a check. We're giving you gosh, this is crazy. You need to set up some kind of proper entity. We want to be a tax deduction. We want there to be accounting. We want there to be a, you know, we need to make this a little more proper. So, okay. So that's when we set up a family foundation, which was the Fleischer Family Foundation. And that was all it was ever going to be, Artie. It was just going to be this little family foundation. This I was a very small family. It was going to be six of my family members. We're going to give $1,000 a year. And we're going to help as many kids as we could. Um, and throughout law school, because I was very passionate about it, I told this story to everybody. 
I told it to my friends. I told it to my law school buddies. I told it to family friends. I couldn't shut up about Kenya and how wonderful these kids are and how they have an ambition to work hard and we don't here in America. And I must have told the story well, because every time I told it, someone else offered to give $1,000. Or a friend said, hey, I'll give you $20 a month. Do you have a system to do that? So we we kind of kept on evolving, right? You know, now I had friends want to give $20 a month. So I needed, now I needed a website so they could start donating. And then more and more people wanted to give. And I didn't really know what to do with all this money. So now we had to, we hired someone in Kenya to help manage the kids and to help us find new ones. And the next thing I knew, we had a, we had a really sizable amount of money. Um, so uh, fast forward a couple of years, I had finished law school. Um, I was still living in Chicago. We had a good chunk of money now at this time. And that was, that was where the, you know, the, the road diverged. Um, I now had enough in this charity where I could make Nairobi work. I could live there full time and just focus on this charity. Um, or I could just stay in Chicago, uh, you know, work in, in, in legal world or maybe work in an NGO in Chicago and, and go that way. Yeah. Um, and it was, the decision wasn't hard, but it was scary. The, the answer was clear to me. I'm going back to Nairobi. I had missed it. I had loved it. I felt like I left my heart back there when I came to Chicago for law school. So I was going, I knew I was going to do it, but it was a little scary um, because I was now going to live there. I was not going to be in this uh, protection of the of the, the church. I was just going to go there myself and see if I can make it work on my own. Um, so I did. And that was in 2018. I moved to Nairobi full time. Wow. And uh, we decided to do something pretty radical. Uh, we decided to build our own high school. Um, what we had been doing in the past was taking these great kids and sending them to local public schools. Yeah. And uh, we want to do even more for them, right? We want to we want to give them such a radically good education that there is no way they can't accomplish whatever they want to accomplish. Yeah. Because the desire is there, right? All the kids we sponsor, the ambition is there. They want to grab the stars. They'll work all night. They'll walk to school for two hours if they need to. They they the ambition is there. They just need they just need the tools to succeed. Yeah. Um, and that the idea let's build a school that gives them all the tools to succeed um and what we decided to do um is to build a school with the infrastructure um that really isn't provided to anyone in kenya except for those who are uber uber wealthy yeah so you know, we're going to build a really kind of quality spot we're going to have smart boards we're going to have quality teachers um, we're going to have an arts room, a music room, a drama room. We're going to hopefully do plays. We have a little amphitheater that we designed. So there are going to be some, some plays that will be done by the kids. And this is the kind of thing that just doesn't really exist in the public schools. Um, so we've, we've begun on this massive undertaking. Um, we've, we've purchased the land. Construction has already started. Um, we're about halfway through construction. Um, we'll have to do a little bit more fundraising to do the other half, but we're looking forward, hopefully, to open in January 2024. And then the school is going to 
focus its efforts on supporting the same kids that we, we always uh, support. Um, and this little kind of tiny foundation that was just supposed to be a few family members ended up really expanding. So the foundation's focusing on doing this school project. Um, at this exact moment in time, we went from having six kids sponsored from when we were in law school, when I was in law school, now the foundation sponsors 41 students. Um, and all of those 41 students are from the same community, Makru Ponchenga, um, technically minus three, three of them we decided to sponsor in the area where we're building our school. So we have three students from that more rural uh, area of Kenya as well. And we, we just try to keep on growing and, and try to keep on finding new ways to empower these students. Because I'm of the opinion now, having been here for a while, that if you wanna support these communities, this is the way to do it. The only way to do it is through education. Um, if you send a student who wants it to high school, do well, you can send them to university. And if they can go to university and do well, there are jobs for them after that. If you graduate from universities with an A, with an A minus, there are jobs for you. Um, and we just give them the path to do that. We developed some mentorship programs so that during their holidays, we see them regularly. Um, our mentorship programs are usually full day, nine to five, and they, and they usually go Monday to Friday during their holidays. And we bring in guest speakers, we have them do exercises, you know, we try to help teach those things that the schools don't teach, right? The schools don't teach how to shake someone's hand with confidence. Yeah. The schools don't teach how to have a conversation, you know, the schools don't teach how to look someone in the eye. Um, the schools don't teach how to use a fork and knife and sit at a restaurant and read a menu. Um, so we try to teach some of those things. We try to do some supplementary education. Um, Geography, for example, is something that I feel isn't, isn't taught enough. So we, we teach a little geography. Um, I think that some grammar stuff is not focused on. So we have someone teach grammar. We bring in teachers. Um, one of the newer things that we've started doing is we hire some licensed therapists who come to these sessions that we have and they have one-on-one -on -one meetings with every single student. Um, doesn't matter if the student wants it or not, doesn't matter if the student needs it or not, they have a meeting with every single student. And for some, the meeting is uneventful and, and bland. But for others, and I don't know the details of this purposefully, but for others, it's a very critical thing. Um, yeah. These kids sometimes have, have, have big issues in their lives and they don't know who to talk to about it. And they, they won't talk to their friends about it, to some extent, I'm not sure they would talk to me about it, but have a, a licensed confidential person who they see during every single break from school and it's the same person, yeah. that, that, that really has an impact. Um, so that's, that's the gist of, of this little family foundation. Uh, like, I, like I said, and I tell everyone, this was supposed to be a little family foundation sponsoring six kids, six family members, and now it's a little bit of a bigger thing. Um, but also, like I tell everyone, is this has really been this great joy for me. Um, I am so happy living in Kenya. Um, it's a great place, just, just period, by the way. Everyone should come here. It really is a special place. But I do not miss, I mean, I, I barely miss anything from, um, from New York. And when I go home to see my family, I'm telling you already, after two weeks, I love my family, but after two weeks, I say, okay, it's time, it's time for me to get back to Kenya already, you know? 
Um, so it, it's just, it's very, very happy uh, time for me. I, I took a, I took a, a, an orthodox path. Um, you know, this was probably not the way I think most people would have done it. Um, but, you know, it, it made all the difference for me. It, it really, uh, it really it took me to a great place. I, I wake up trying to see if I can have a good impact. I try to learn as much as I can so I don't make the mistakes I made in story one, story two. And, um, you know, on the holidays, seeing these 41 kids who are all sponsored and all of these students, by the way, one of our criteria is that they come from backgrounds where they could not be able to afford education. Um, so these 41 students would not be in school if it wasn't for all the donors that are supporting us. Um, so it, it just, it's, it's really great work. I wake up happy and I'm, I'm so glad I made this kind of crazy decision that I made from, uh, from finance in New York to philanthropy in, uh, in Nairobi. That's amazing, Stephen. Like just listening to how your journey has unfolded has given me goosebumps, sort of trying to, yeah, imagine, like, yes, I've grown up in Kenya. Yes, I was born there. But your journey has been radical, as you've said. It's, yeah, you've totally immersed yourself in communities where I don't know the depth of. I know they're there. Yes, I see them, but I haven't lived in them to know the depth um, of them. So that's absolutely incredible. Congratulations for that. The other thing I was just sort of trying to get my head around was with the foundation. So you have sponsorship as a part of it. Then you have the mentoring programs as a part of it. And then sort of the upcoming or the future one will be this high school. Is there anything else that you are doing as a part of the foundation? We have a couple really tiny little things, um, but generally the two things are really sponsorship and school. So um, just to get into it for a second. So sponsorship, we basically say, um, please support us with $1,000. And $1,000 will cover a student's education for one year. Um, in reality, the, the cost is more like $600. And we, of course, tell that to uh, all the donors. The extra 400 covers all the other stuff we try to do for the kids. So we find that all the schools in Kenya, for the most part, are boarding. So getting the, the supplies to go to boarding school is very, very costly. Yes. Um, the uniform is $200. I mean, $200 is an untenable number for, for kids from these communities. So we use funds for that. Um, one thing we've noticed is that when kids get sick, they don't see anybody. They just go home and they stay sick. Yes. So we've set up a little medical fund with the excess money. And as soon as any student gets sick, they call us. We will send them to a good hospital. We'll pay the whole bill in full, things like that. Yeah. Um, some of the extra money goes to textbooks um, yeah. because we've noticed that not all the textbooks are provided by the school. Sometimes they share in a way that is just awful, you know, four textbooks for a class of 25. Yeah. Um, so we'll offer all our kids textbooks. And then obviously a lot of it goes to mentorship where we, um, we went, rent out sort of a big space in their community and we have talks and we, um, we have some catering done for lunches and things like that. Um, so you're right, that's one thing, the sponsorship program. We have the other thing, which is the school construction program. Um, people can donate you know, an earmarket for the school construction. 
Um, some people who, who are willing to donate enough to build an entire space, like let's say someone wants to build a library or someone wants to build a classroom, we actually dedicate it to that donor. So there's a nice cute plaque that says, you know, in honor of, you know, one of our supporters, whoever, whoever. Um, and then the, the other programs are really tiny. We have two other little programs. Uh, one program is a basketball team. Um, in Mapuru Kwanjenga, there are plenty of, of young men and women there who did not get sponsors to go to education. Yeah. And it's tough if you're from an area like Mapuru Kwanjenga and you didn't go to school. Um, there's a lot of idleness. There's, it's, it's nearly impossible to find a sustainable, proper employment. You can maybe find some daily jobs and little things to do here and there, but that's about it. Um, so we decided to do something kind of fun. And we, um, we took a, a bunch of great young men that we knew and a bunch of great young ladies that we knew. And we formed two basketball teams and we, um, we have them properly registered in the league. Um, they play games sort of all over Nairobi. They have practices. We spoke to the school. The school lets them practice at the little basketball court in their school. Um, and it just, it just, you know, provides little things, right? You know, sportsmanship, teamwork. They have a goal they're trying to accomplish together. Um, so it's a very small expense, but it's something that we, we enjoy doing. Um, and then we have one other very, very small program. Um, you know, as a lawyer, I'm, I'm partial to legal education, and I thought it was a great thing for my life. Um, so we do help uh, some university students here from law school attend this one tremendously wonderful educational and legal um, MOOC competition. It's this fantastic international competition in Vienna, um, and we, we support um, a few students from law schools here who, who need some support to attend this, uh, this conference but also a sort of very, very small subsect of what we do. Primarily it's just sponsorship because it works, you know, it, it really works. And it's, we've had a tremendous success rate with it. Absolutely. And um, Ashni from GECOs and WECOs has, tell us about that. She's partnering with you, with um, the foundation. Yeah, absolutely. So Ashni is the one who connected the two of us, and Ashni is from Jesus and Goes. Um, and Ashni is so kind to have decided to partner with uh, my little foundation here in Kenya this year. And what she does at Jesus and Goes is she does a cooking class. Um, she it's live on Zoom, and she tells you the ingredients beforehand. You go out and buy it, and you have this really really fun cooking class. There's a mocktail recipe, a cocktail recipe, and then whatever the dish is. Um, and she charges $15, I believe, for you to get a ticket to join the cooking class. And she takes 100% of the money and she passes it along to a specific uh, charity that she thinks is doing a good job. So honored that she chose us. Um, people have been really generous. You know, it's $15 for a class. We're seeing people give $50 or $100. A few have given $1,000 to sponsor a specific student. Um, so we really appreciate those overpayments for your cooking ticket. Um, and a big thanks and a shout out to Jikos and Wikos for uh, supporting us. And for anybody watching this, sign up, Google them, and uh, come join the cooking class for a great cause. And I'll, I'll um, put the link um, as soon as I upload your chapter and conversation. That's absolutely fantastic. Thanks a lot, um, Ashley. And Stephen, have I 
missed out on any questions, anything you've wanted to say, cover that I haven't yet even thought to ask you? You know, I don't think so. I think uh, I think we had all the points at least I wanted to cover. Um, and I, I think the only thing I have to say is thanks so much for uh, for sitting down with me and connecting over Zoom. And I'm uh, I'm honored to have told you my story. And I'm looking forward to maybe some other people, if they have an interest in it, hearing it as well. Absolutely. And before we do wrap up, are there three to five key takeaways you'd like for anyone in the world listening to this chapter? to take away from the conversation? Well, you know, I'm gonna, if it's okay with you, I'm just gonna give one takeaway. Um, okay. Because I, I think this is the, the moral of the story. Um, and I think the moral of the story, at least for me, and there are certainly many more takeaways than this, but the moral of the story for me is don't be afraid to do something different. Um, don't be afraid to, to break the mold and get off path and try something else out. Um, I, am, I am of the believer that uh, it's, it's gonna work out. And if your heart's in it, you're gonna find a way to make it work. It might not seem like it's gonna work. It might seem crazy, but if your heart's in it, if you really believe in it, you're gonna find a way to succeed and don't be afraid to make that tough decision. It's a tough one. It was crazy for me. And I can't tell you how many times I was kind of scared um, that could be a whole other talk we can do already about how scared I was to make some of these moves, but um, go for it anyway. And that's the takeaway that I would, I would focus on. Absolutely. No, thank you so very much, Stephen, for taking the time and being so open with your experience, your journey and giving us so much to think about and so much. Yeah. Just to sort of try to, yeah, see what difference it could make to someone else's life. And for anyone else that li that's listening to this chapter, please feel free to share it with anyone that may connect and sign up for the Jikos and Wikos cooking class um, to help out these students. Awesome. See, oh, and this, no and this conversation can be found on Facebook. It can be found on podcasts, um, whether it's Apple or whatever it's um, human chapters and at some stage I will be putting it on the YouTube channel as well so yeah thank you guys sounds good